this epistle written by the Apostle Paul, of course, to the saints of God at Rome. Saints of God at Rome. Uh, there was a New Testament church at one time at Rome. And I will not take the time to prove what I'm about to say here, uh, but I think that is the background to what happened in the book of Second Thessalonians, uh, where that the Antichrist uh, took over the church there and time and uh, usurped the position of Christ. And that's what I understand in the second chapter of, Psalm, of Thessalonians chapter 2. I'll not spend time to look at that, but he exalted himself above all that's called God. And that is the beginning of the Roman Catholic Church in, in a formal state. The heresies and doctrines that the Roman Catholic Church hold to have their origin in ancient Babylonianism. Uh, and I'll not spend time proving that statement to you. Uh, I hope you will accept it. But uh, Paul, writing to these saints at Corinth, at Rome, gives us this great epistle. He is a very knowledgeable man in the teachings of the Old Testament. Uh, he was a Pharisee of the Pharisee. He was of Jewish blood through and through. Uh, you think about the Apostle Paul, how uniquely God prepared him for the ministry that he had, the apostle to the Gentiles. He is uniquely prepared as much as Christ himself uh, to be the minister that he was. Christ, very God, became flesh that he might completely, finally, and fully reveal unto the saints of God the mind of God. No man has seen God in the flesh. No man has seen God at any time. But the only begotten of the Father, he hath declared. And that word declared in Romans, John chapter 1 there is a very significant word. It is not without significance that the apostle John used the word, word to describe Christ, Logos, the communication, complete, perfect, final communication of God's mind to us. It is amazing also to me, and it is a, a, somewhat of a fresh awakening and awareness of how oftentimes the Lord would say, the words that I say unto you are the words that my Father gave to me, the preservation of the very words and the authority of the very words that Christ spake. He said, I came not to do my will, but the will of him that sent me. And the words that I speak are the words that the Father gave me, say unto you. Final and complete revelation of the mind of God to us. And so here in this 15th chapter, the Apostle Paul writing, says to us in verse 4, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning. Now, <clears throat> Have you ever thought about the process of writing, the very mechanics of it, of writing? I appreciate the, the time that Brother uh, Mike prepared and the effort and all that went forward to bring forth the seminar or the presentation of the history of the English Bible that we enjoyed here, and I was very much impressed with that. I have long been aware of the history of the English Bible, and um, I was in Pensacola Bible College on occasion, and there they had on display uh, all of the, of the a copy, at least, of all of the Bibles. Uh, they were way back, I'll not recall the exact first one, but Tyndale's and others even prior to that. But God has been pleased 
to bring forth the mechanics and the science and the skill and the knowledge to be able to record words. In this modern day and age in which we have computers and word processors, we don't think about that very much. But even in that, we have the wisdom and skill of God being made, brought forth, whereby that abundant manifestation or freely in liberty, free with great liberty, the Word of God has been spread even to other countries and to places where they had it not in various translations. I always enjoy from time to time as I'm traveling and to go into the hotels and motel we may be staying in and pull out a Gideon Bible and look at the various languages that that Bible has been translated into. In this day and age in which we live, there is a great assault upon the King James translation. I have said that I believe it is the best English translation that we have. While it is not perfect, I do not believe in its inspiration, but I do believe in the preservation of the Word of God to us here. And you go back to all the years and ages and processes of time and how it is uniquely that God has given us today a accurate and a trustworthy Bible and blessed you with the knowledge of being able to read. I'm engaged, involved with a brother in Pakistan, and we buy Bibles in that language and send to them in Pakistan. We trust the ministry of God's Word. While there may not be a spokesman there, there is the Word there. Yet, if there is to be a spokesman, it will be by the Word of God and by the Spirit of God. What sort of things were written aforehand? That begins with the very first book of the Bible. It goes all the way through the last. Our Lord gave credibility to all the Old Testament canon when He spoke to the scribes and Pharisees and said that upon Israel that all the blood slain from Abel, that child of Adam and Eve, all the blood slain from Abel all the way to the blood of Zacharias, who was killed, slain before the prophet, before the altar. And I may not call his name exactly right. Uh, I might need to look at that. Matthew chapter 23, I believe it is. Yes, chapter Zacharias, son of Archias, Archaeus. Uh, that's recorded for us in the 23rd chapter of Matthew. And that event, according to the canon of the Old Testament, Jewish canon, that event is recorded for us in Second Chronicles chapter 24, which was the last book of the Old Testament canon according to the Jewish uh, canon, uh, order of the books. And so our Lord gave a seal of approval and confirmation upon all the Old Testament canon, as the Jews had it in those days. And then, of course, walking along with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and uh, they were in distraught. Those words that they spoke to our Lord there in the, as they were walking, and <laughs> you know, you can sympathize with them, and yet you can somewhat be amazed at them. You heard him say that he would rise again the third day, and he told you that he would be crucified, and all these things, and, and yet they just, like us, the apostles, while they were divinely enabled and empowered, they were human beings too, as James says about the prophets of old. And they they said, uh, we trusted that it had been he which should redeem Israel. Besides all this, today is the third day since these things were done. Despondent, despair. 
It didn't work out like we had planned it, thought it was going to materialize. We expected a physical deliverance from our oppressors. They did not understand that something much better had been done for them than a physical thing, but a spiritual deliverance and a spiritual kingdom had been established. And so he takes them to the Old Testament and we read in the 27th verse of that 24th chapter of Luke, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them, unto them in all the scriptures the things that concerned himself. Wouldn't you not just love to have walked along that road that day and heard how that the Lord just went through them and unfolded and opened up? And I think that he must have certainly began with Genesis 3.15 about the seed of woman and the seed of the serpent. But he began to, to with complete revelation and clarity to methodically reveal and show to them how it was that he was the fulfillment of all that the prophets had prophesied. And in so doing, he not only was confirming that he was the Messiah, but the whole purpose of it was that he might give them comfort and consolation concerning the events that had happened. So back to the 15th chapter of Romans. Whatsoever things were written aforetime, all that God did, the mechanics and the preservation of all the canon of the Scriptures, Old and New Testament, and all the frailties and things that possibly could have happened. I remember I was in high school when, unbeknownst to me, the higher critics in Germany were attacking the book of Isaiah. And uh, it was prior to high school. It was probably I was in junior high, to make it correct time. But anyway, just as the higher critics had mounted all of their energies and proven beyond any questionable doubt that the book of Isaiah had three different authors to it, and it was not a book of prophecy, but it was more a book of history, a composition of three different authors. And so thereby they were discrediting all the prophecies of the book of Isaiah. When a little shepherd boy along the dead Sea Valley there, his goats, one of his goats got lost, and he was looking for the goats. And he goes up into a certain cave, and in that cave he found parchments. He didn't know exactly what they were, but he recognized that they were indeed something of some history or they're ancient. And so he gathers them up. And to make the story short, it confirmed to be, it found out to be the book of Isaiah in such a way that it proved beyond the shadow of doubt that the book of Isaiah had been written by one man. Time and time again, it has happened that God has brought forth his word or scientific evidence or something other to confirm that the Word of God is indeed a trustworthy book. There was a time when all the scholars scoffed at the book of Daniel. And I have in my library a book, Critics of Daniel, and it's a long list of how that all the so-called theologians of the superior wisdom attacked the book of Daniel, its prophecies, that it was not accurate, that it was not true. And one of the very key things was uh, this man that Belshazzar. There is no record of such person, they said, as being the king at this time period. No record of this man. And they thought they had proved it beyond a questionable doubt. But by God's divine providence, a stone was found that gave record of how it was that this man, Belshazzar, was not indeed the king, but he was somewhat the son of the king, and he was sitting in the father's place and so it was that he could offer to Daniel the third position in the kingdom, confirming 
the book of Daniel. Well, there are many others I could go with you and talk to you some about whereby that God has, by scientific evidence, by historical evidences, confirmed that all the records that we have written to us in the Word of God, that they are accurate, in spite of all the critics that have tried to attack it. Why has God, in a miraculous, marvelous way, done this? For you and I. You and I are sitting here today. The saints of God at all ages and all times and as long as time shall go on. He has preserved His Word for this very benefit, for our learning, for our learning. The Word of God is an instrument whereby God is pleased to make known to His saints His mind and His will. It is the sole final authority. There is no superior authority. No dreams. No person who comes along and says, Well, I, I am a Latter-day Saint or Apostle or I found some golden tablets somewhere in a cave and an angel gave them to me. No one anywhere can give us any instrument of any superior authority and accurate record than what is recorded for us here in Thus saith the Word of God. This is a preservation of the Word of God. And why? For our learning, instruction. The saints of God need instruction. We are not left to our own devices, our own imaginations, our own wisdom, so to speak, because it is so fallible. But we, in a way, as ignorant people, and I mean that in a spiritual sense, but as children are taught by the Holy Spirit through His Word, the way of righteousness. And it is for our learning. And what's the purpose of all this learning? I remember as a very ignorant eighth grader, I had gotten back my math score. I loved math. That was the one thing that I excelled in. You know, the joke is said that, you know, I was outstanding in school. Most of the time, it meant that I was outside standing in the hall because I misbehaved in the classroom. But <clears throat> the one course that I loved was math. And I had received my final exam back from the eighth grade test in math. And it was all, not quite 100, but it might have been 98 or something other like that. And I sat there looking at that paper, gloating over that score. And I said, I don't need to go to school anymore. I can read and write, and I can do math. Pardon me, Brother Herman. I thought I had obtained all the knowledge that I would need to prepare me for all the rest of the years of my life. Foo, foo, foo. And I, the longer I live, the older I get, the more I understand how much learning I need. And I hope to be still learning, studying and reading. And the marvelous thing is that no matter how many times you read the Word of God and what portions you read, you will always find and see there are new things that you never saw before. And the light comes on brighter where once it was dim. And at very time that you may have read over a verse and you had paid no attention to that verse, now the circumstances all change and you read that verse. And all of a sudden the Lord says, here it is. Take hope and comfort from this right here. And you bow your head and give thanks to God that in your hour of distress, the Word of God came to be an instrument of comfort and hope to you. For our learning that we through patience, a virtue that we all need and that I'm greatly lacking in, but we through patience. But how is it that patience is accumulated? Well, we're told in Romans that tribulation work of patience. But... That's not all of it. It is in the midst of that tribulation that you take 
and given knowledge from God's Word that God is in control and that in the midst of that tribulation, He is working for your spiritual good into His glory. And you can say, whatever it is, God is in control. And that gives you patience. I hate traffic lights. I am totally <clears throat> opposed to ever been a traffic light anywhere, any place, any time because they're always interfering with my purpose and what I want to do. And I have to tell how typically, typical, how typical I am in this matter. I was in a hurry to go someplace, somewhere. I don't remember. It's always, if that's the way it is in life, you know, anymore. And I was in this hurry, and I came to a railroad crossing, and just as I get to the railroad crossing, the gate comes down. The lights go off. I said, Lord, don't you understand? I'm in such a hurry. Why dear? And all that it was was the engine. And the engine passed and the gate went up. And before I could realize it, the gateway, the road was open. I said, forgive me, Lord, for my impatience. But what gives us patience in the time of these? It is this, the comfort of God's Word and the assurance there's no temptation or trial overtaking you, but such as is common. And God will with every temptation provide a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Where do you get that from? Not from Longfellow, not from Shakespeare, not from Chaucer, not from Mark Twain. Where do you get that? From the Word of God. And because it is the Word of God, and because you know its validity, and you know that it is credible, and you know that it comes from God, you say, this is God's Word for me in the midst of this trial. And you take patience given to you. That we through learning might have patience. And there's another word, comfort. How can I be comforted in the time of my trial? And while I'm going through all this trouble, how can you possibly mention comfort? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they what? Tell me. Comfort me. The Word of God. Comfort. For this purpose, comfort us of the Scriptures might have hope. The word hope has been abused. Some have it in such a feeble, frail thing that that's not the meaning of the word at all. It is more positive. It is consolation. It is assurance. It is that which God speaks to us. And when we say we have a hope in Christ, we do not mean to something that we're just wishful thinking, but it means that we have great consolation and we have a reason to have this hope because of what God has promised to His people. Now, I've taken a few minutes and I can go on and talk about something about the preservation of the Word of God and I believe in that very doctrine. Our Lord said, Not one jot nor tittle of the law shall pass away until all be fulfilled. That, that is such an emphatic, definite declaration from our Lord that there would be the preservation of God's Word until every detail that God ever gave concerning it would be fulfilled. Of course, you know, 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. But the next verse is not one that we're always so familiar with, and I'll not try to quote it, but read it to us. Verse 17. For correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, and that word means complete, and 
fairly furnished unto all good works. The preparation of God's people, instruction, the mind that we need to have, the understanding that we need to have of the things of God, they are all right here in the Word of God. There's nothing else that we need. Now, I don't mean to belittle education. I most certainly wish that I had more of it, and you do too. I wish I had more of it. But that's not what I'm talking about, trying to belittle secular education. But I'm saying that there is no better thorough knowledge of the mind of God and there's no resource that we can go to to find a better understanding of what God's will and God's purpose for His people is than for right here in the Word of God that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished here unto all good works. I have a library, not as extensive as Brother Mike's is, but I have a library of a lot of books. And the longer I live more useless they become. They're good books, but they just, I realize more and more that the Word and the source of comfort to my heart and for my instruction and for my help in a spiritual sense, they will be found only in the Word of God. There are a lot of scriptures that I could read and try to give us some support on that. In the book of Isaiah, the Lord makes promise after promise And I'm going to go back even farther than that. But uh, in the 51st chapter of Isaiah, verses 7, 8. Hearken unto me, ye that know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear ye not the reproach of men, neither be ye afraid of their revilings. Why? On what basis? What premise? For the moth shall eat them up like a garment. This insignificant insect, I will use it to destroy them. And the worm shall eat them like wool. But my righteousness shall be forever, and my salvation from generation to generation. You know, the older you get, the more you're concerned about the previous, or the past, the coming generation, the younger generation. And you wonder, Lord, what are you going to do with these young people? What can I give to the young people? What can I leave for the young generation to encourage them? I'm fearful about their future and what lies before them. And what can I do to prepare them for this? Here, the Word of God. It will be appropriate for every age, for every circumstances, for all people in every country. I want to go back to the book of Genesis, the 12th chapter. Well, really, the 15th chapter is where I will skip over to. I'll skip the 12th chapter. Verse 13 of the 15th chapter of Genesis. He said to Abraham, Know of a surety thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs and shall serve them and they shall afflict them 400 years. That's not good news. But the next verse is good news. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge and afterward they shall come out with great substance. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace and thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Now, I want to just, in my imagination, go with you and stand here with Abraham as you're told your seed is going to go down and going to be in servitude for 400 years, and they will be afflicted of them. How would you take it if someone stood here with some authority and said to you, your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren are going to be in a 
servitude and bondage for 400 years. And they will be afflicted. That's not good news. But the next verse was meant to give Abraham comfort and consolation and peace concerning what God has just said. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterward shall they come out with great substance. Now I ask you this question. Did that happen? Almost well, certainly it did. You know all that happened. You know how God did exactly what He told Abraham that He would do. And on God's schedule, in a miraculous way, Israel, who had been in this bondage and servitude, came out of Egypt and not in poverty, but with great wealth. But the Bible says, King James says that they borrowed from the Egyptians. And the word actually means they ask. And the Egyptians gave it to them. Hurriedly. Get out of here. Was that not peace and comfort and consolation for Abraham? And was it not that God did exactly like he said he would do? And the history of the nation of Israel, and I haven't time to go through the chronicles of it, but the whole history of the nation of Israel was this God doing exactly what he said he would do, what he promised that he would do. And so from the very time that God brought Abraham out of Ur Chaldees, that unique nation was a trophy and a testimony and a, a, what God promised even when he was putting them in judgment, in bondage. I warned you, I told you, if you do this, I would do so and so. God kept His Word and His promises, and they failed not. And Messiah came forth according to the promise of Isaiah. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a child. His name should be called Emmanuel. Impossible. I've read that the rabbis, as they would read Genesis 3.15, the seed of woman. How can that be? always the masculine seed, the seed of woman, only by the virgin birth. Exactly as God said, here was something that it was scientifically impossible, biologically impossible for it to happen. And the scoffers and ridiculers could easily make a great case. It cannot be this way. But it happened. Because God would fulfill His promises and His word to His people and his, accomplish His will. And it so happened. In the book of Isaiah, and I'm just going through some highlights here to talk to us about some things, laying a foundation, by the way, some other things. Isaiah, about the 40th chapter, the Lord speaking to Israel told them what was going to happen about the Babylonian captivity. He prophesied and gave them by the mouth of the prophet and said that he would bring forth this man in the 44th chapter that saith of Cyrus, He is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be built into the temple, thy foundation shall be laid. What, what in the world? How? Jerusalem is standing. The temple is standing. Who is this man Cyrus? I have a, a book in my library, again, on the history of this man. It is, it is unbelievable how God preserved his life and raised him up to accomplish what God had purposed and promised he would do. He says in this 45th chapter, verse 13, I have raised him up in righteousness and I will direct all his ways. He's talking here about Nebuchadnezzar. And he, and I mean Cyrus, Cyrus, I'm sorry, Cyrus, and he shall build my city and he shall let go my captives 
not for price nor reward, saith the Lord of hosts. And when you read the history of the restoration and rebuilding of what's called Jerubbabel's temple, the second temple, the temple, it happened exactly like God said it was going to happen. Jews in captivity for 70 years, no military strength, no riches, no wealth. Here they are. The city, the temple has been destroyed. What's their hope and consolation? God's word, God's promise. God said he would do exactly what he would do, and he did it exactly that way. It's, it's fabulous. You read the account of how it was that Cyrus captured Babylon, this greatly fortified city, a city that was thought to be impossible to ever be destroyed and conquered, and yet exactly as God said it would do, the gates were left open, and it, God gave Cyrus victory over Belshazzar. And Daniel said, Tonight, thou art weighed in the bounces and found wanting. What's the, what's, why do we have all this detail and record? That we, through learning of the Scriptures, might have patience and comfort and hope and assurance that God keeps His Word. In spite of how dark the day may be, how adverse the circumstances are, how impossible it may appear, God does exactly what He said He would do. That's the comfort we have about our salvation. What is the hope of our salvation? <laughs> Not in our abilities. Not in our faithfulness nor worthiness. It's all because of God's free and sovereign grace. He has purposed that we would be conformed to his, the image of His Son. And in spite of all the adversaries, everything in the world to try to prevent the salvation of God's elect people, God has accomplished it. It will not fail. He will do everything that He has purposed to do. He whom He did, those whom He did foreknow, He has indeed predestinated to be conformed to the image of His Son. And they all shall be justified. They all shall be called. They all shall be glorified. Not because of their worthiness. Not because of anything that they do. Not at all anything where that they contribute anything. God sovereignly does it all by His omnipotent power. And we are kept by the power of God unto salvation. In spite of our failures, weaknesses. You even look at this man Lot. From all human circumstances and the record we have of him you would not at all believe that he was a child of God. I take great comfort that the Lord said, righteous delivered righteous lot, imputed righteousness. Not to try to justify evil or sin, but to say in spite of our sin, God keeps his word. Now that's somewhat preparatory and introductory to what I want to get to, which is in Matthew the 16th chapter. And I gave out sheets last night about what a New Testament church is. And what I want to direct your attention to here in the 16th chapter of Matthew is God's promise. Matthew, the 16th chapter, the Lord speaking to the apostles said, Whom do you say that I am? Who do men say that I am? And they gave various answers. That was one of the prophets and so forth. But then he said, Whom do you say that I am? And Peter made this great statement, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. In the Greek, the definite articles, the, or there. That means that it's emphatic, exclusively unique. Thou art the Messiah, the Son of the living God. No other. I remember talking to a preacher one time who was a graduate of a certain liberal seminary, and he said, yes, I believe that Jesus Christ was a Son of God. We're all sons of God. And I quoted this verse to him, and he said, well, Peter was misguided. Well, look what our Lord said. Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood is not revealed unto thee. In other words, preacher, 
infidel, all the education and learning in the world that you may have had will not give you this knowledge. It comes from God Almighty by revelation to you individually. And I use the word revelation, not lightly. He reveals to us, and that's the word that Paul used, that God was pleased to reveal to him Christ. He reveals to us who Christ is. You've not learned this by flesh and blood, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto thee, that thou wert Peter, upon this rock I will build my church. Not upon Peter, but upon this knowledge of who he is, and upon the very character and person of Christ. Upon this Petra I will build my church, the rock. Paul says that no other foundation can any man lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. He is the rock of our salvation. He is the rock upon which the Lord's church is established here and is promised And I will build it. I will build it. It will not fail to be built. The God of the Word says, My word shall go forth and will accomplish that to which I purpose, and it will not return to me void. Rest assuredly, the Lord has purposed to build His church, and He will build it up. You'll read in the book of Acts, the second chapter, the day of Pentecost, when Peter preached on that day, and there were some 3,000 souls that were saved, and they, the Lord saved such as should be saved, and were adding them to the church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, <clears throat> there's a great dispute and question oftentimes in theologians exactly what does this mean. Some say that the gates of hell may refer to death. That's all right. Some of them, though more my understanding is, it refers to the forces of hell. Both of them, I think, are involved here. But all the forces, all the schemes, all the plots that evil men can muster together and conspire in all that they've ever done and will do will not destroy nor prevent the church of Jesus Christ from persevering and being brought into this very day and age which we live. Just as you have the Word of God given to us, just as we have God working in salvation to His elect people from beginning of time, so the very same omnipotent power of God works in the preserving, fulfilling of His promise that He gave unto His apostles there on the shores of Galilee back in His first advent. He preserves and He perpetuates His church, not because of the ability of men, not because of some political powers, where we have always, the Lord's churches, have always been the object of the adversaries of the truth of God. And in spite of all the persecution, in spite of all the heresies, in spite of all the things that have ever been done against the Lord's church, they have been brought forth unto this very present day that we have in this very present hour in which we live New Testament churches in existence. Because Jesus Christ promised it. It never was part of Rome. Oh, I know you can read history books that say that. Well, when I hear that argument, I say to them, which history book are you reading, first of all? And no matter who they, what book they give me, I'll tell them you're reading the wrong history book. And the reason being is because there's only one infallible history book, and that's God's Word. I don't care how many history books you might read, how many authors you might compile together, I don't care how many so-called evidences you might bring forth. Here's where I stand on the Word of Jesus Christ. You know how many scoffers there are about the flood? <laughs> I mean, where can you go to a college anywhere today that is so-called accredited college and have a course on the 
truthfulness or the viability or the accuracy of the Word of God about the flood. Yet, there are scholarly men who have said and brought forth the evidence that the one event that's ever happened in time, there's no more accurate, preserved record than is the flood. Drive along some countryside roads, you can in where there's a mountainous terrain and you see these rocks and they're way like a big wave and they're layers of... My father used to work in the coal mines in West Virginia, miles back under the mountains. And he said it was not unusual in those coal mines and the digging in the coal for them to hit a fossilized tree stump or limb. How did it get there? You know, they've got their own explanation. Well, you and I know by the flood. And so in spite of all these so-called intelligent, super-wise ones who deny the truthfulness of the flood, you and I stand believing the Word of God. And we by faith accept the record of creation. The man that wrote about it was dead or was not there when it happened. But he wrote what he wrote. Moses wrote about it. It was accurate, infallible. Oh, no, God didn't create the world in three days. It was eons of time and eons and eons. We, we scoff at them. The real reason we scoff at all those so-called scientific theories and, and hypotheses, the reason we scoff at them is because we have the Word of God. And we know what God says is true. He keeps His Word. It's an accurate record. Six days and six nights, God did it. And I believe it. Because God has put in our hearts given to us a faith that we believe Him. So likewise, I believe God's record and God's promise about the preservation and perpetuity of His churches. The Lord will not fail to keep His promise. Oh, the church at Jerusalem died out. I don't know today if there is a New Testament church in Jerusalem or not, but I do know that the early first century church in Jerusalem was so ravished by persecution from the Jews and they were so scattered and by the Romans came in in about 134, there was not a Jew left in what we refer to as Israel. And so any believing Christian was there, took the warnings of our Lord in Matthew, the 24th chapter, and fled. But in so scattering them to the various places that he did, he was simply preserving and perpetuating his churches. And they fled from Jerusalem up to Antioch and into Greece. And so the last book we have written in the Bible, the last canon of the New Testament, written by that sole survivor of the, of the last original apostles, John, on the Isle of Patmos. The latter years of his life, approximately maybe about 90 years of age, serving the Lord faithfully all those years in exile on the Isle of Patmos. Why, Lord, why in the world did you put this servant out here, taking from the fruitful ministry he'd had throughout Asia Minor, because I've got something to show you that the saints of God will need to know for the years that lie before them. And John, writing by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gave to us this panoramic view of the preservation and perpetuity of the Lord's churches in spite of all the enemies, in spite of all the adversaries. And when you read through the book of Revelation, you find it, it seems like that the, all the evils of possible, the powers of hell come forth, and they're all figurative terminologies whereby that expresses the evil doctrines and persecutions. And I don't want to get into all that right at the moment, but I want to tell you that the book of Revelation writes to us initially, and here's how it begins. 
the unveiling of Jesus Christ that God gave unto his servants to show unto his saints things that must shortly come to pass. They were beginning to be made manifested, and they intensify as time goes on. You and I are living in a day when they are being intensified. We may are made to be fearful for our own country. Saints of God have always, have rightly so, been fearful. I was just reading over in Brother Spicer's home again, Baptist piety about Obadiah Holmes and about the early persecution of the Baptists in New England. What a tragic, terrible history that is. For whatever day and age you want to read about since the days of Christ, God's people have been a persecuted, hounded people. They've had to flee for their lives into caves and woods, and some of them have been burned at the stakes, and even by those who were professing to be Christians. But in spite of all that, just as the book of Revelation conveys to us, Jesus Christ is victorious, and his church is preserved, and his saints are victorious in all their adversaries. But in that chapter, he addresses it to the seven churches of Asia. The first century, there were churches still in existence, and they maybe went out of existence. There's no, maybe no New Testament church at Sardis today, maybe none at Laodicea, but we know the history of what happened to those churches. The saints of God moved up into northern Italy, into the valleys of the Piedmont, over into France, on into Europe, over into England. There's record that even in the early third century, that saints of God were in England. There's record that maybe even Paul not went up to went up to England, but that he was instrumental in having the gospel through other people delivered into England during his lifetime. So that we have record for us in the Word of God that the testimony in the Word of God went to the went to all the ends of the earth. Churches were established. And the history of the Lord's churches is a bloody trail. And you and I are here today in existence. And New Testament churches are in existence in America today. New Testament Baptist churches are in existence throughout the world today because of God's promise. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, I've given to you a handout in which I give some support for what I say about the definition of the word church. That word has only one true definition to it in spite of all the other terms of it definition been given to it, and that is that it is always to be considered as a local called-out assembly. The Bible does not teach anything of a universal invisible assembly. The Bible does not teach that all saints of God are in the Lord's church. There is a process. There is an order set forth in the New Testament. After regeneration, scriptural baptism. That's what brings us into the fellowship of the Lord's church. That was the pattern. But those local called-out assemblies, that's what God has promised what Christ promised. Not a universal, invisible thing, not an intangible thing that cannot work and do the work of God. And it was that same assembly that he met with there in that upper room and gave to them the Lord's Supper. It was that same assembly that he gathered with on the 28th chapter of Matthew and said, Go you into all the world, teaching all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And I submit to you on the authority of God's Word that that has not failed, that there have been in all ages since the days of Christ a people who have been preaching and teaching the true gospel of Jesus Christ, preaching the truth about the, the ordinances of the Lord's Supper and baptism, and also teaching His saints to observe all things which Christ has commanded us. They have not been caught up in the popery of Rome. 
they've not been taken overwhelmed by false doctrines and, and heresies. Though they have at times been imperfect, though they have left the church at Corinth, had many times in irregularities in them, yet God has been pleased, just as you and I at times fall into sin, such as you and I at times walk astray. So the Lord has been pleased to preserve and recover His churches and persevere them till you and I can say, Today, according to God's Word, we have New Testament Baptist churches still in existence. Not because of some political government. Not because we have won the favor of men. Not because we are well-liked. Not because of our machinery, political and religious machinery. But because Jesus Christ made promise that the gates of hell shall not prevail against us. Now back to my text. These things were written, Paul says in the 15th chapter of Romans. These things were written time for our learning, for our learning. The saints of Paul's days and the saints that should ever follow after the Apostle Paul. Do you take comfort in Romans the 8th chapter? Of course. Take comfort in all of God's Word. Take comfort in those things that God has preserved for us. These things are written for our learning that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have assurance. And I submit to you that Matthew 16, 17 is a part of those Scriptures. They were the very words of Christ Himself. What other authority, what superior authority is there than the words of Christ? And how would dare, how a man would dare to some way or another try to dilute or pervert what Christ said? The gates of hell will not prevail against it. I submit to you, that is the final authority, and it is proof that we have today New Testament Baptist churches as the same kind of churches that our Lord established during His earthly ministry. Therefore, it is a comfort, and is written for a comfort that we through patience, patience, patience. New Testament Baptist churches have never been popular. They've never had the ear of the world. We have never been liked by the religious world. We've always been the object of scorn by the religious world. The persecutors of God's churches down through the history has not just been the world, ungodly world, but it's also been those who were professing Christians. Don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial that we might fall into from time to time. It is not unusual. I take the words of Paul in the book of Hebrews, the 12th chapter, as some rebuke to me and others. You've not yet resisted on the blood striving against sin. Some saints did and have. But nonetheless, we are to be encouraged that even after I'm dead, even after you're dead, that the Lord is pleased to preserve and perpetuate time, the Lord's churches will be in existence until the Lord comes. A verse of Scripture that my dear friend, Brother Zach Guest, loves to quote and it, you hear him quoting it many times in the third chapter of the book of Ephesians. And that's where I will close. Ephesians chapter 3. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Amen. The Lord has promised to preserve his churches. They will be in existence until the Lord Jesus Christ comes again. And he will be receiving glory through the work of the preaching of the true gospel of our Savior, are in teaching concerning the ordinances for the comfort and encouragement of his people. And may God bless you here to be encouraged to know that the promises that the Lord made unto his church there in Matthew, the 16th chapter, they are to his churches today, and that we might have patience and comfort of the Scripture and have hope. Our Father, we come to you here this hour. We thank you for the Word of God. We thank you for the precious promises that you've given to us in it. And we pray the Holy Spirit will make them applicable to our hearts and that we might indeed be encouraged by your promises to your people and have the demonstration how that you've loved us 
in setting forth your Son to redeem us from our sins, and that indeed you promised to us eternal life. Most certainly in those promises we have great patience and comfort and consolation as it also pertains to the Lord's churches. We pray your blessing upon this assembly to your honor and glory in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.